Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. One of the pleasures many of us missed during the recent lockdown was the ability to browse the shelves in our local bookstore. While the printed word has come under huge pressure in newspapers, journals and magazines, the book has been very resilient, despite the relentless march of electronic devices, shortened attention spans and a 24-hour news cycle. Books and cinema have always been very close bedfellows, and this week's episode looks at two very different aspects of that relationship. Later in the show, we'll speak to best-selling author and former laureate Nanogue Sarah Crossan about her favourite book-to-film adaptations. But first, a new film from director D.W. Young, The Booksellers, focuses on the rare and antiquarian book trade in New York City and a number of its most notable figures. The Booksellers is now available to rent from iTunes, Rakuten and Sky Store, and I'm delighted D.W. Young now joins us down the line from Massachusetts. D.W., thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about how your lockdown has gone. Have you been working? Have you been reading? Have you been catching up on films and TV? Uh, it's gone okay. We um, left New York in March, early in March, after our theatrical run got kind of shut down, like everything else, because of the corona. And we've been staying with family out of the city. We have a daughter who's eight, who, you know, it was hard to turn down the chance to give her a lot more room to exist than be locked in a tiny apartment in the city when everything was locked down. So that's uh, that's how it's been going. Although I miss being in the city and there's a lot going on there and, and supporting that remotely as best as possible. It, but otherwise, it's been quiet, really. I, other than the film has been playing virtually in the, in the U.S. and just came out on VOD here. So we've I've done a lot of virtual Q&As for it. And um, it seems like a lot of people have been able to see it that way. Sadly, it's not in the theater, but we'll take what we can get right now, of course. In terms of watching things, we don't have great internet where I am here. So I haven't been able to stream things to the degree that I, we're, we're all accustomed so I've been watching a lot of uh, Turner classic movies. I think it's been a bit of a lifeline in that regard. Congratulations on The Booksellers, which is a, a really fascinating film. Um, I'm interested how you came to the story of The Booksellers. Do you have a personal connection to the to, to books or the book trade? I do have a personal connection, although it doesn't relate to how the film uh, got started. But I, I had an, an uncle who were um, rare book dealers for many years in Philadelphia. So I did have occasion to visit their store every so often as a kid and be able to go in the back or man the uh, bargain cart out front. So I have, you know, a personal fondness for bookstores beyond just my own, you know, frequenting of them as, a, as an adult and, um, and for, you know, they were pretty extreme book people. So I, I you know, I, that I think maybe on the personal level, it was a kind of nostalgic element for me in making the film. But in terms of, you know, mainly the film came about through our, or the very origin of the film lay with our producer, Dan Wexler, who's actually a rare book dealer in New York, as well as a filmmaker and producer. And, um, and he introduced the idea of possibly making a, a film about the rare book world a number of years ago. We just didn't, at the time, we were all busy with other projects and didn't get to it until about three years ago. There's a great kind of collection of characters or cast of characters in the film, if you like. How did you go about casting the film? I like that you say casting. I like thinking of documentaries casting in many ways, because it incorporates kind of the subjective aspect of things. And it is, I, you know, I think New York, one of the reasons the motivations for doing it in New York, beyond the fact that we were all New York based, and it gave us a both, you know, a means of doing it affordably and reasonably, but also, um, I think a way to contain the subject matter on some level was focusing on New York, because there are dealers all around the United States, obviously, many wonderful dealers, and we 
could push over to abroad and everywhere else, and there'd be no end in sight. Um, but, but also, I think New York, being New York, um, we had confidence that there were a lot of, you know, really interesting and varied dealers that we could um, enlist to be as part of the film. And Dan was really helpful in that regard, especially in the beginning, because I think he, he, he knows a lot of the New York dealers and he's friendly with them. And he gave us, I think, a good entree with some initial people and tried some shortcuts. Really, I think we could have gotten there in the end anyway, hopefully if, with most of them. But um, I think a certain familiarity with Dan and then, you know, confidence that it was going to be a legitimate production uh, got us, you know, early acceptance from some people. And, and from there, we built up, you know, a, a, a growing list and kind of made more connections as we spoke to people. Did anybody need any particular coaxing to be involved? Were there any particularly reluctant subjects? For the most part, no. But there were a few, uh, there were a few people who declined, who mostly, I think, um, not because they didn't want to support the project per se, but because they just did not want to go on camera. And I think, you know, on the one hand, I don't, I don't think people, you know, rare book dealers are necessarily the people, kind of people who are leaping to just, you know, be on camera. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think um, they are very often quite charismatic and able to be um, very, very sort of visible and well-spoken in their trade. And uh, when need be, I think it's, there's a lot of talk when I've talked to everyone about we're all introverts, basically. Um, which I certainly sympathize with. But like, I think like all introverts, you can muster up when you need to. It just takes a lot out of you. So in, for the most part, I think everyone really felt like the, they wanted to be, help, I think, properly represent the rare book trade and give it its due. And, and they were happy to, be, to participate in that. What do you think the documentary tells us about the personalities of booksellers? Because what I noticed is that so many of them, while they're book collectors, they collect a lot of other things as well. There's a lot of other ephemera in, in the film. It's, it's quite an interesting dynamic that they yeah, that have. Was the, that was something I didn't appreciate going into making the film, um, was the degree to which ephemera and other historical sort of material all falls into the, the, the rare book realm. And um, it can be almost anything, really. I mean, you see the Victorian board games and you know, Enigma machines and all kinds of strange stuff. One thing I love about everyone, but one thing I do love about it, so many people in their book trade is that they're so multi-talented. And so many of them are writers or collectors as well, or, you know, they have, they wear many hats often. And so you really get a fascinating assembly of people when you, when you sit down with a bunch, with a, you know, a group of rare book dealers. Was there anything that surprised you during the making of the film? For me, I couldn't help notice that they had these incredibly rare books, but a lot of the time they didn't wear gloves when they were handling them. Yeah, that's, that's you know, I, that question comes up quite often. And I, there was a sequence in the film from what we, the material we filmed where Adam Weinberger in the film actually discusses that with someone. But, and in retrospect, it would have saved me explaining that a lot, but it, it was going to be too complicated to fit it in. It wasn't something that it could just fit in on its own. It sort of needed the context of the moment. So it didn't work in the end, but you know, it's the gloves. Honestly, the gloves are actually worse for handling books because books are really designed to be handled by human fingers. And that tactile component that you get with your finger actually helps avoid tearing and damaging the books for the most part. And it's, I think with photos and art, it's a different story, but with, you pretty much never see rare book dealers ever wearing gloves. One time I was shown a $350,000 map that was so frail and was being held up in front of me that I was amazed at the, deal, her, the dealer's, um, her ability to, to sort of confidently bring out this map. I felt like a sneeze would, would be its undoing, right? <laughs> 
So they, they have it. You, you definitely need a certain amount of confidence and, and experience to handle the really delicate stuff. I was just thinking that I would not want to be in the same room as a map that cost $350,000. <laughs> Um, it's a real credit to the film that there are so many women featured, um, as well as people from ethnic minorities. But what comes through very clearly in the film is that there is a there is a substantial lack of representation within that um, rare book trade industry. Yeah, I think that's that's true, and I think um, I don't think that from a modern perspective we can look at the rare book trade today and not sort of you know take stock of those aspects of things. And I think you know part of that. I think greatly this is due. It seems to me. Not due to any sort of um, by any design, but you know the rare book trade. I think is a is, is a very sleepy kind of world that's stuck back in you know it's sort of a, it's sort of an artifact from another era, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that era you know I think was you know traditionally collecting up until fairly rec- you know recently was heavily dominated by sort of wealthy white men, and you know if you look back certainly like the era of Rosenbach and J.P. Morgan and Huntington and, you know, that whole collecting era, era up through the, up until the war, you know, that's, you really think about that. That was really what defined the trade. And so I think coming out of that, if you, it's certainly a stark contrast to say in the U S um, if you contrast, you know, academia or libraries and the, the, who makes up the people involved in that versus the rare book trade, it's, you know, it's very different. But I think it's also, you know, with the rare book trade, it's difficult to say, and this is, I've gleaned this from talking to everyone, what, how do you do that? How do you change that? Um, is there's no easy answer because it's just this loose affiliation of very small businesses who are often run by one person or one person and an assistant. So, you know, how to bring, a, you know, a, a broader demographic into that world is, is something everyone's trying to figure out ways to, uh, I think, improve um, as, as comes across in the film. But there's no sort of uh, direct line that I've heard anyone, you know, find. I think the argument, you know, bring people who's collecting interests and, and, and sense of what the rare book trade could be more sort of uh, to make them more aware of it and, and provide more uh, sort of potential opportunity there, I think is seems like a, a importance. And I think um, the, the prize that Heather and Rebecca in the film, Heather um, O'Donnell and Rebecca Romney have started for a couple of years now for young women collectors, I think is a really great sort of means of trying to address this a little bit. You know, it's for people who maybe didn't even, who, who collect stuff that they didn't even realize, think of themselves as collectors or are collecting, you know, in a new and kind of interesting way as part of a newer generation and kind of giving them sort of support and, and being enthusiastic about bringing them into the, the book world. So um, I think that's the kind of thing that maybe, you know, could could yield positive results. That little section where I think the, we see our, the audience sees themselves, where you're talking to some of the people outside the book fair in the queue, and they're all like, oh, no, I've left my credit card at home. <laughs> right. And he's, um, that's actually, he's actually, he is a, a, a dealer and a, a, a really good book dealer in, in Brooklyn, David, who we interviewed there. So he was, his buying was buying for a, a real purpose. Tell us a little bit how it works, DW, when you're the editor on the film as well as the director. Do you have a strong sense of how it's going to look day to day? Do you edit as you go along or does that all come together in the end? I did not edit this as I went along at all. And I think that my feeling for something like this is, you know, that at least half of the creative process of the movie falls into the editing. Um, it's so open-ended in its way and there's so many people and it's, you know, there's so many branching paths you could take with how you, you tell the story that I, I personally like to try and lock it down overly in the beginning. I, I think uh, it's not something I wanted to do. Um, I certainly, I think 
had a lot of ideas and, and committed to certain things that we probably would be doing. And um, it certainly reviewed the footage as we went and had a sense of what we had. But, it, you know, I think, you know, in terms of really crafting it, the structure and deciding what stays and goes and trying to create the kinds of connections that would layer into the film to make it, you know, hopefully um, nuanced and interesting about the this, this subject matter is principally happened in the edit. Um, and we did, and the nice thing about something like this, and I think it's almost unavoidable, is that, you know, we added things as we went in the edit, though. So I did do little things here and there and added a couple of interviews and obviously B-roll and little things to flesh it out further or, you know, make those kinds of connections that you realize you want, but you don't have quite the way you want it. And so it's a bit of an organic process, I think. I want to finish with the start of the film, um, because obviously the film opens with an extract from Susan Sontag's letter to Borges, where she laments the precarious state of the book. Were you left feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the book at the end of the film? I'm feeling cautiously optimistic, I'd say. And I think it's, I think, you know, it's tricky because I think when we talk about the future of the book, are we talking about just books as printed objects that people read? Or are we talking about the rare book trade itself and how that impacts, you know, their work? And what's the future for people collecting books? And there's obviously an important relationship between the two, but it's not exactly the same thing either. So it seems like in terms of the book as a printed, uh, you know, object that people will continue to read instead of in lieu of, you know, eBooks, it seems like things are, you know, have stabilized quite a bit and eBooks have plateaued and people are reading, reading lots of printed books still. So that's, I think, comforting. Um, and millennials, for now at least, that generation is reading a lot here in the U.S. at least. You know, I think the, as Glenn Horowitz's points out in the film, the slightly um, more pessimistic take would be looking further and further down the line, not just, you know, five years from now, but it's more like 30 years from now. Have we become so, you know, caught up in, in the Internet and, and, and other forms of, you know, digital sort of interface mm -hmm. that we've slowly diminished our interest in long form you know, printed narratives and books. We shall see. But I, I think for the book trade, the concern is more like, is there going to be a constriction of the trade that just brings the number of dealers, the level of interest in money? Is it, does it narrow down or not? And so I think, you know, you, who knows? I don't know, but hopefully not. I think if people are reading, then they'll still be collecting down the line, hopefully. I, I used to work in the book trade myself, and there was always a huge emphasis on ebooks and the internet. But it's it's one of those things where it could be something as intangible as just people's attention spans are shortening. So that's maybe where the challenge will come from. Yeah, I think I think that to me is the that to me seems absolutely like the greater threat, not the ebooks, because I think people have realized that that physical process of reading a book is somehow tied into our our mental engagement as well, and that that's uh, complex and can't be just sort of you know, shoved aside so easily. But like our attention spans and our, I kind of call it our cyborgification, you know, I feel like our smartphones are just the net, are just the sort of a bridge to a much more complete implant that will come, you know, for full-time internet, you know, and you have AR like, um, and stuff. So, you know, I think those are kind of the more long-term questions that, that we don't know the answers to yet. And what can we look forward to from you next, DW? Well, that's a good question with all of the Corona stuff. It's a little tricky to <laughs> launch into projects right now. I, um, I have a narrative project I'd really love to get off the ground, but I think uh, indie narrative filming is probably not going to be possible for some time yet, possibly vaccine likely, you know, there's no insurance for, you know, COVID shutdown, and that's a pretty hard thing to take on. Mm. Um, so I'd love to get into 
a narrative project again. Um, I have one longer term documentary that I'm sort of is out there, but it's got years to go probably. And um, I am thinking about doing something around the election this year in New York. I did a little smaller film around 2016, but I have some ideas to do something a little different for 2020. But I don't want to say too much about that because it's the idea has a little is a little different is a little unique, so I don't want to give it away. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. D.W. Young, the uh, booksellers, is now available to stream. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much. Take care. Former laureate Nanogue and Carnegie Medal winner Sarah Crossan is the author of a number of award-winning and best-selling YA books, including One, Moonrise and Toffee. Her first book for adults, Here's the Beehive, will be published this August. Sarah is a huge film fan and she joins me now to talk through some of her favourite book-to-film adaptations. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Hello. Sarah, we're going to start with some questions I've been asking everybody. How has your lockdown gone? What have you been watching? TV series, films, old, new? I have found concentration very difficult. So anything that's long, uh, it doesn't manage to uh, capture me because I'm up and, and, I don't know, juddering, jittering, fiddling. So um, I've been watching, actually, I've been watching Schitt's Creek. So those are nice kind of 20-minute episodes or 22 minutes. And I'm really getting into that. Love that. And then I've been watching films that I know very well because I can watch 20 minutes and then get up. So Dirty Dancing, I think I've seen now (laughs) 30 times during lockdown. And I'm watching films with my daughter. So uh, we're watching The Cat in the Hat, Ugly Dolls, Harry Potters. We're doing all of those. She likes to watch films again and again and again. She gets nervous about watching a new film in case there's too much peril. So um, we have to vet the films very carefully so there's no tears at the end. So a lot of kids' films um, and films that I, I love from the past, mainly. And when we're not in lockdown, what are your kind of go-to genres of films? What are your favourites? What, Where would you go for genre? I don't know. I think it's changed a lot. The older I've got, the, the harder I find it to watch sad films. So any film where I know I'm going to be choking by the end, I tend to avoid. I like feel-good films. I like film that makes me smile by the end, but not rom-coms. I think... Um, Dirty Dancing, I suppose, would be indicative, yeah, because it's it's got tension and drama, but it, it all comes right in the end. Um, and I like films that make me laugh as well. So I just, I, I saw Jojo Rabbit as well over lockdown and absolutely loved that. I thought it was so clever, just brilliant. And then, of course, it feels hopeful by the end. So, um, yeah, I think Jojo Rabbit has been my, my favourite film that I've, I've watched recently. It's that kind of vibe that I'd go for usually. Yeah, and two, two, two brilliant performances from the two leads. Um, sir, you're based in the UK now, but I know you were born and you grew up in Dublin. So do you have a favourite cinema memory of, of your time in Dublin? Yeah, I find it so... Di- well, I tried to block out the past <laughs> as much as possible. So um, I don't remember a lot from my childhood. I only really remember going to the cinema twice. Uh, once was with um, a neighbour called Josie who took me to see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and she gave me a Cadbury's cream egg. So that's how long they've been around. And I also remember going to the cinema with my dad 
and my brother and my dad left, I think halfway through and probably went to the pub and then picked us up <laughs> at the end. So, <laughs> I don't remember what cinemas they are. I do remember the red velvet seats and then it being quite squeaky and small in there um, and smelling of smoke, if I remember. Yeah. I don't know, were we allowed to smoke in cinemas years ago? I think they were, weren't they? The last film I remember where there were people smoking was The Living Daylights, the James Bond film. So that would have been 1987, 1988. So that's the last time I can actually remember, you know, smoke while watching a film. Gosh, and that's not that long ago, is it really? Mm-hmm. Um, as an author, has cinema influenced the way you write at all? Do you, the way you construct characters or the way that you visualise scenes, do you think? Uh, death, absolutely. I, th- I really think of a verse novel in it similar to, to how a film works, that there's these very, very short scenes that are threaded together um, and that the reader has to do that threading in the same way that I think somebody going to the cinema sort of has to work out how those scenes connect to one another. So when I write in verse, it, it does feel very cinematic to me. And I try and describe the scene that I can visually see in my head. And I've also just been influenced by filmmaking in, in terms of, the the subject matter so moonrise is based on a bbc documentary um called 14 days in may about a guy called edward l johnson who was on death row in in mississippi and one was best was was based on a documentary as well that i saw about abby and Brittany hensel who were conjoined twins living in minnesota so yeah i do feel influenced by what i watch and i yeah so so i'm not kind of puritanical and about you know you need to be spending all your time reading just living in the world and and absorbing other arts i think are really important for me and I go to kind of art galleries a lot, the cinema a lot and just try and immerse myself in the arts as much as is possible but for me writing in verse is a really visual process so yeah absolutely I'm, I'm completely influenced by film and the way that works. I might just see a scene when I'm watching a film and think oh how could I describe that you know in a, in a novel and, and sort of capture that in a, in a poem in 17 lines or whatever. Do you ever find yourself casting your books? I used to at the beginning, at the very beginning, but I don't do it anymore. I don't know why I don't, I don't know why I don't do it. But there was a, the first book that I ever wrote that didn't get published. I had Liam Neeson as one of the main characters. And I think that would, <laughs> it's a no go right now. So um, I wouldn't be casting Liam Neeson anytime soon. But no, I don't do it. I don't know why I don't do it. I don't think I, I know what my characters look like. I know how they feel and I know how they sound, but I'm not sure I always know how they look feels too specific somehow. Uh, we're going to talk about some of your favourite book-to-film adaptations. Um, of, of the list that you sent on, I can't help notice that the four out of the five uh, were released in quick succession from 1991 to 1997. So is that a coincidence? Or does that kind of reflect a particular period of your life? Or, or what kind of inspired those choices? You know what it probably is, is that if I love a book, and I know that a book, I, as I was saying at the beginning, that if a film is going to make me cry if it's going to wrench my guts I tend to avoid it so books that I read now that I absolutely love I won't watch because I'm afraid um, I might watch if I'm, I know that I've got time on my own and the doors are going to be closed and no one's ever going to see me having this experience and it can be a really private <laughs> experience. but often I'm watching movies with other people so it doesn't feel private in the way that reading does so I avoid it because for fear of emotion. Um, so for example, normal people, I haven't seen it. I must be the only person in the whole planet <laughs> who hasn't seen normal people. And I haven't seen Brooklyn, 
because I love that book. I absolutely adore that book. And I used to teach that book. So I think recently when I know a film is going to punch me and, um, you know, do a number on me, then I, I need space and time to be able to do it properly and privately. So I think that's probably why. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've become pathetic in my old age. I think. The first film you've picked out is The Commitments, which is Alan Parker's adaptation of Roddy Doyle's Barrytown trilogy novel. It's such an iconic film from that period of My Left Foot and Into the West when Irish film was really in full flight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe that I was, must have been living in the UK at that time. What year was that? What year was that? 1991. Yeah, so I was definitely living in the UK. So I watched that film on repeat over a summer, I think every day over a summer, and I watched it with my cousin Louise. And my cousin is actually in it. Um, my cousin Brian is in his, he's in the audition, one of the audition scenes. You know, you've got the, the auditioning for the... Um, yeah. Yeah, to be in the band. And my, my cousin Brian is actually in, in that. And I don't know, I think it was the music, it's the warmth, it's me probably feeling some kind of connection to Dublin. And I read the the trilogy and I absolutely loved the trilogy. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I think there's such a warmth to that film. And also it speaks to youth, doesn't it? And like the hopefulness of youth. Mm-hmm. And you, you have a dream, you have a plan and you make it happen, no matter how kind of rough it is around the edges. And it, as, as a young person, I think I felt inspired by that. Like I can do whatever I want to do. I can be whatever I want to be. Because look, this crowd did it. <laughs> this lot did it. Yeah, and I still love that film. I still go to that film loads. Yeah, and what's really striking about it is obviously it was one of three films. So you had The Commitments, you had The Snapper, you had The Van, and they're all set in very local, very specific parts of Dublin, but they're all huge international hits. That The, the, the theme was just universal. Yeah, because it's about friendship, ultimately, isn't it? Friendship and family, you know, and, and where you... And I always talk about this. I'm so boring, but I always talk about belonging, where we find our sense of belonging. And I think that's what that book does so well. It's not about the money that you have. It's not about external things. It's about the intimacy that you create and the, and the belonging that you find with people that maybe you hadn't expected to find that belonging with. I think that's what it does so beautifully. And, you know, going back to Shit's Creek, I think that's why Shit's Creek is so successful because you have this family who are wealthy and then they go down and out and and yet they're happier than they've ever been it speaks to something i think really primal in us something that we really truly believe but we don't actually fight for on a daily basis we fight to make money but ultimately we know that's not what brings us happiness and i think these film that film particularly speaks to that the film is is 30 years old so i think we can talk about it without you know spoiling it necessarily for anybody but the thing i really always really liked about the commitments was that it always had a very realistic ending rather than going out on a high and being international superstars that it was very much like you're saying those relationships that they just always kind of just break down anyway and and it doesn't matter if they do because the the joy of being in that is is what mattered the the experience itself was what mattered and that's that's a <laughs> that's a nice learning moment for for the audience as well isn't it <laughs> you know you can be in love and then the relationship ends but you you were still in love and so that's the thing you hang on to i guess um, a bit of a 180 for your second choice and um, the remains of the day which uh, is james ivory's film based on the uh, Booker winning novel by Katsuo Ishiguro um, i'm with you on on this this is one of my favorite books and one of my favorite films of all time Tell us why you chose this one. The film has just stayed with me. The book obviously has stayed with me. I think it's his best book. It's the quietness of that book. They managed to capture that in the film and the way the relationship builds. I think it's such a subtle love story 
and I think it's beautiful as well because these are older people. I mean, now I don't think they're that <laughs> that much older, <laughs> yeah. but they're, you know, they're older people who fall in love and yet they can't be together because of you know, their own hangups. And I think that again speaks to a lot of a lot of what we feel that we stop ourselves doing things we really want to do because of our own hangups. Mm. I just like the quietness of it. I like the way it builds. And I like the way it ends. And similarly to the commitments, it doesn't end happy clappy. It ends really realistically. I don't know. I think it's a gorgeous love story. Unrequited love. I don't know if you'd call it that, but sort of, I suppose. Yeah. What's really striking about the film, I think, is that the book is very deliberately paced. It is quite slow and it moves. And they really, they kept that for the film. And I'm just wondering, you know, how important as a viewer do you think it is for a film to be faithful to the book as much as possible or do you think that there is that leeway as much for filmmakers to to take certain elements but not take others I, th I guess it depends on the book and i guess it depends on what the purpose of the film is i think they're different art forms and so for me when a book of mine is bought when the when the rights to a film are bought and they ask whether or not i want to be involved in that film i always say no because it's not my job and it's not my art form and it's not what I know and I think filmmakers are good at seeing the way a book could be portrayed in film and it has to be different but then there are books like Remains of the Day where I think if they'd messed with it too much if it had gone too Hollywood and too glitzy even if the finish had been too colourful it wouldn't have the vibe that I think was what the book was about in the first place you know the book was about that slow pace the book was about the darkness and the quietness and so to change that feels like well, you know, just write a different film. But then there are some films like, you know, I think, I don't know whether I said at the beginning that watch Cat in the Hat with my daughter, and that's nothing like the Cat in the Hat. I mean, there are a few elements. You've got thing one and thing two, and you've got the Cat in the Hat. But they had to create more. It's a teeny tiny little, you know, poem. So they were really deliberate in creating this whole narrative with a neighbour and stuff in it. And that was necessary and felt like it worked. But I think with something like Remains of the Day, what Ishiguru was trying to do was this slow-paced build know build this relationship and and really have us on the edge of our seats wondering whether they would get together or not so to to do anything different i think would have been a disservice to to the beauty of that book really yeah. and and the two main performances and it's funny that that scene where um anthony hopkins is reading his book and emma thompson comes in and she wants to know what the book is that it's such a quiet scene but it's such a monumental scene as well because it's it's called breaking down of a world like the two performances are just incredible i love that i love the subtlety in that film and these sort of micro moments of togetherness and then the micro aggressions as well and that's how we all live I think I think we live in micro moments we don't live in grand gestures and so I think we you know that film feels really relatable you know that's what relationships are aren't they they're built on these tiny moments not on someone buying us a car and you know it's wrapped in a bow that's not what we remember or, or what creates relationship I guess We've been fairly spoiled by film adaptations of Shakespeare down the years, um, but Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet in 1996 felt very, very different. It was a real breath of fresh air. Uh, tell us about this one. Right, so I don't know, maybe this is one of my favourite films along with Dirty Dancing. I love the Baz Luhrmann version of Romeo and Juliet. I saw that in the cinema in Manchester with my friend Emma Burtonshaw. Um, I'd gone up for the weekend to see her, so I was already at uni at the time. 
and bawled my eyes out at the end. Love Claire Danes's performance. Um, obviously love Leonardo DiCaprio's performance and completely fell in love with him. That scene where he's outside the, the trailer and he's smoking. I've never found smoking sexy at all, but the way, <laughs> the way he inhaled that cigarette, my God, it just did something to change the synapses in my brain. Yeah, I just, I absolutely loved it. The scene with the fish tank, the music. Um, I ended up having the Desiree song i can't even remember it's gone out of my head now the title of it but that was what i walked up the aisle to i'm divorced now so <laughs> i shouldn't love it too much but um no i still love that song uh, yeah so i had that played at that played at my wedding um, and i love shakespeare um when i studied shakespeare at uni obviously i studied it at school but when i studied it at uni it just it just spoke to me in a way that kind of no other playwright spoke to me and i, I feel a bit obsessed with shakespeare actually i've just finished well not just a couple of months ago, I finished Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, and I would love them to make an adaptation of that uh, to kind of rival Shakespeare in Love. I think it, it would be wonderful. But yeah, I don't know, because there are so many versions of Romeo and Juliet, and I, I think this is the best. And I, I was taught by, um, oh God, her name's gone out of my head now. The feminist, the Australian feminist. Jermaine Greer. Uh, Jermaine Greer, sorry, yeah, she, her name went out of my head. So I was taught by her at uni, and she did a series of lectures about why this was the most faithful to the text. And it was all to do with really the relationship with the mother, relationship with the father, control, family relationships. So yeah, even Jermaine Greer thinks it's the best version. <laughs> but even just the way, it, like the energy of it is just, uh, you know, it, it starts at the top and it just keeps going the whole way. Um, and just all that, you know, the big ball scene with the drag queens. And it, it, it was just a whole different way of looking at Shakespeare and just bring it to a whole different audience. Yeah, I mean, the casting was fabulous. Mercutio was, was absolutely brilliant. Um, and just so exciting and made, and made Shakespeare so accessible. And I don't know that many people were doing it then. You know, there did feel like a snobbery surrounding Shakespeare. And as you probably know, with my We Are The Poets project, that I have no time for snobbery when it comes to poetry. And so I have no time for snobbery when it comes to Shakespeare either. And when I was a school teacher, this was always the version I used because kids could relate to it. And and that's what this film is, that's what this play is about. You know, it's about two kids who fall in love and they can't be together and how painful that feels. And we've all been there, you know? And, I, and when I speak to kids, I always, I, I recite it. I do recite the balcony scene because I'm, a, <laughs> I would say I'm a failed actress. I'm not a failed actress. I never tried. Um, I want to be actress. So I kind of do the balcony scene in front of the, in front of whoever I'm speaking to. And we all know what that feels like. We all know kind of what that feels like to, both be Romeo in the garden being a bit stalkery and and to be sort of so in love with someone that we would die for them. You know, I think, well, most of us, I think, have felt that way at some point and especially in our teen years. Um, yeah, so I love the play and I really, really like, I really like that adaptation. I think it's super. Just as a as a aside, a story, I went to see it, I think it was in Virgin Cinemas in, in Dublin and, and at the end, I mean, I was just completely invested all in loving it and that scene at the end where he's taking the poison and she wakes up and she sees him and then she does that ugly cry thing and the girl behind me burst out laughing oh. and i was like film completely ruined and it was, it was and it was the first time i was like you can only see a film for the first time once yeah, absolutely. And that scene when we were talking about should we, you know, should um directors, should writers adapt the book, you know, how much should they adapt the book well obviously in the play that's not how it you know that's not how it plays out but 
he is dead by the time she wakes up. There's no crossover where they see one another alive. Yeah. So, and I think that was a really, really nice choice that he is dying as she wakes up. Um, yeah. So <laughs> one of my favorites. Sarah, your next choice is the Oscar winning, multi Oscar winning, The English Patient. Won nine Oscars, a beautiful, sweeping, historic epic with Ray Fiennes, Kristen Scott Thomas and Juliette Binoche, who won an Oscar. This feels like it was grown in a lab to win Oscars. Yeah. I saw the film before I read the book. So this was this was the other way around, which I rarely do, but I saw the film and I was absolutely blown away. I mean, Ray finds, I mean, he was the sexiest man alive for about three and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> and Kristen Scott Thomas, but I mean, the chemistry between them in the film, I thought was fabulous. And then of course it was a forbidden relationship. It was an affair. So, I mean, it couldn't get any sexier. I think, it, you know, even though there's not a lot of kind of raw, you know, there's not a lot of, we don't see it in a lot of detail. It just feels like one of the, the sexiest films that I've ever seen. I think I went to see it with my mum now, I have to say. Um, so probably didn't, it's like that girl behind you. You didn't, I didn't quite enjoy it in the way that I probably would have um, if I hadn't gone to see it with my mum for the first time. Even now when I'm sitting watching films and my mum is sitting next to me and there's a bit of a, a kinky scene, I think, oh God, please, no. Yeah, so I, I think that's why I loved it so I love it so much. I, it's, it's a real tearjerker. Um, and you've got this, these landscapes, you know, these beautiful desert landscapes. And so I think, yeah, there was, so, there was so much about it that felt really exotic. I really, I really did love it. And I think I had seen Ray Fiennes in a production of Hamlet just a little bit before, just not long before that. And so I was sort of really, in, I was really into him at the time. Um, it's funny because I wouldn't be a huge fan of The English Patient as a film, but when I see images of it, it just always reminds me of, and it, it's an easy comparison to make, but it always reminds me of Lawrence Arabia and those big epics where you just have these kind of sepia scenes and, and desert and those dark scenes in the hospital and stuff. But I mean, absolutely beautifully, beautifully shot. Yeah, I mean, when he's carrying her body across the desert into the cave and, and it, the camera kind of pulls out, I don't know what the that film, I don't know what the film speak is, but when it kind of, the, the shot is from a distance and you see the whole desert landscape in this cave, I mean, it's so, so dramatic. And there are just some lines in it that don't quite make sense, like it, but that, that add to the beauty of it. So he's angry that she's still married and she's still, you know, with the man that she's married to when he wants her. And he says, he, he just says, how can you stand there? You know, and then he continues, but it's just like, well, how can you stand there? But it's not really a statement or anything. It's just his frustration at how can you be? How can you exist when I'm in your life and, and not be with me? So I think the script is is beautiful as well. And it is it is it isn't exactly like the book. Um, but I, I love the film so much that I bought the I bought the film script as well so that I could read that. So I've read the book and the film script and, and seen the film. So yeah, it's one another one of my favourites. We're going to fast forward. That's the end of the 90s period. We're going to fast forward uh, to earlier this year, in fact, um, and another breath of fresh air when it comes to adaptations. And this is Armando Iannucci's The Personal History of David Copperfield, which is just an absolute masterpiece. Oh, and joyful. So joyful. My friend said, do you want to go and see David Copperfield? And I thought, oh, could there be anything more depressing <laughs> than going to see David Copperfield of an evening? No, no, I don't want to go and see it. And I was just blown away I, it was so joyful and so beautifully shot i loved that they chose a diverse cast i think it worked so brilliantly and the cast were brilliant um 
And yeah, I just thought it was funny. And I came out sort of bouncing a little bit and feeling really, really happy. And um, I don't know that that happens very often when you see a Dickens, <laughs> you know, and the colour that they used in it as well. I suppose I expected it to be a lot of greys. I expected it to sort of feel quite dark and it didn't. There was so much colour and felt somewhat not animated, but there was a there was a playfulness or like a childishness about about the way that they constructed the set that I felt made it really like a very, very happy film. David Copfield isn't a isn't a kind of skip along happy novel because i know so many people who've watched it with younger family members um, and as you say it's a really joyous film and it's a really good way with the possible exception of muppet christmas carol it's a really good way to introduce younger viewers to dickens yeah yeah i was thinking that about my daughter she's seven but then when you've got her running away and i, I didn't i wasn't sure i wasn't sure about kind of the romantic sexual relationships i i couldn't quite decide it's the same as little women my daughter's seven and some of her friends have watched Little Women. I think, I don't know that she would cope. I don't know. I think it's a little bit emotionally complex. Um, she cries at the Never Beast, Tinkerbell and the Never Beast. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure she could handle it. But, yeah, certainly if I was teaching, I'd be sticking that film on on a Friday afternoon to introduce young people to... Obviously, it'd be part of my plan. I wouldn't just stick it on without, <laughs> without doing, you know, my due planning. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be great to be used in the classroom with students who think they hate Dickens. I liked the way you were sort of, you were part, you were almost part of the process of the filmmaking. Like you were watching the filmmaking happen in a way as you were watching him doing the writing. So it felt a bit like the fourth wall was being broken. Um, my, one of my favourite things about the whole film is the way that Brona Gallagher, the macabres, Brona Gallagher and Peter Capaldi's children never age. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I never noticed. Yeah. Oh, he does so well in that. He, Peter Capaldi, that's it. I, I th- he's almost one of the best, I think, in that. Just so funny and deliberately grotesque and so lovable. I think he played that so well. And I, w- I, I would have thought that was sort of an unexpected choice. I think of him as, you know, taking on really serious roles. But... Um, yeah, no, he did such a good job with that. Um, just to finish up, Sarah, tell us a little bit about, as I mentioned at the start, your first novel for adults, Here's the Beehive, is coming in August. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so first book for adults, it's um, a book which opens with a solicitor taking a call from a woman who says that her husband has died. Um, and the solicitor is a wills and testaments solicitor. Um, but what the woman on the other end of the phone doesn't realise is that the solicitor has been having an affair with this man. So basically the wife has called to say that her husband and, and her lover is dead. Um, and so that's how the book opens. And the book is basically about this woman's grief and she doesn't really know where to put her grief and she doesn't know if anyone can understand her. So the only place she feels like she's going to find solace or comfort is with the wife of her dead lover. So she does what she can to befriend this woman um, and a kind of complicated and very unhealthy relationship ensues between the two women. And so that's kind of in a nutshell what it's about. And have you enjoyed writing for adults? Was it, did it feel very different? Did it feel like a very similar trajectory then than writing for a YA? It did, it did feel similar that the process wasn't different. I just felt a little bit freer because I really work hard to make my books palatable for teenagers and I didn't have to, think too much about damaging my you know audience i could say whatever i wanted i think i've got the c word on i don't know page three (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah so there's there's a little bit more swearing and 
um, it gets sexy at points. And, and that was kind of nice not to have to worry about censoring myself. I don't, I don't censor myself in terms of subject matter for my YA, but I do try to find ways to write certain scenes where if the young person had never encountered that scene before, they wouldn't quite know what it was about. So I do try to, to veil things to, to ensure that I don't sort of damage young people. You know, I don't trigger them and damage them. Um, but I didn't feel like I needed to do that with the, with the adults. So in some ways it was um, easier, I guess. Um, but then, you know, you're always doing a lot of emotional digging, no matter what book you're writing. So I did a lot of emotional digging for this book. And yeah, it was, there were lots of bits that were painful to write, but um, once it's done, it's done. <laughs> On to the next one, and uh, I've forgotten about that. So, yeah, but I'm excited. So August, I think it's the end of August, August 20th, that it's coming out. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye out for that on August 20th. All the films that we've been talking about today are available to buy or rent on Google Play, iTunes, and Sky Store. Sarah Crossland, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Stephen. That's all from this week's sci-fi podcast. My thanks to D.W. Young and Sarah Crossan. We'll be back next Friday. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The IFI is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.